to you. Um, Mark and I have uh, just begun the practice of filling each other's pulpit whenever we are called elsewhere. Uh, I, I've had some opportunity to preach to different demographic groups, different denominations, and I always start off with a disclaimer that I would love to hear your feedback afterwards, all of the positives and as well as all of the negatives. Negatives are totally fine with me because I grew up in a Chinese church and trust me, your criticism is like this. <laughs> and the criticisms I received growing up are like this. So your criticism will still feel wonderful to me. <laughs> I've experienced this already and uh, it's just funny in, in the differences of how we use our words. Uh, we say we admonish. Uh, but I think the Chinese culture at times squashes uh, in, in that way of trying to be encouraging. Uh, I will read our passage for this morning. I confess, it has been a while since I preached through just two verses. Pastor Mark gave me 30 minutes or so to preach. Uh, I want to actually read the preceding verses, starting in, in verses James 1, 19. <clears throat> The point of that is to see the progression of James's argument that he has beforehand to come to verses 26 through 27. So I will read 19 through 27, and then I will pray for the blessing of his word and preach through it. So if you follow along with me in James chapter 1, verse 19, I will be reading from the ESV. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. But be doers of the word, Sorry, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father God, we thank you for the time that we have to come before your word as a body of believers to study your word, to seek your word implanted in our own hearts. I pray that you will continue to tr transform us to become more like you, Lord Jesus, as you address both the outside of our lives and the inside of our lives. Because, Lord Jesus, we do know that you will judge us in our words, actions, thoughts of our minds, the intentions of our hearts, and ultimately our souls. And we pray that it is by your grace and mercy that you will judge justly 
and that because of the cross of Christ and his resurrection, we will have lived well for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I I have to start off with a slight apology. I have not been here through your series. I know it's called Faith in the Real World. Uh, I want to actually talk a little bit about James because I did the study for my own self to preach on just two verses. I have to know the whole entire passage, the whole entire book. James is an amazing epistle, a letter. It's unlike Paul's letters. Those of you who have studied Paul's letters thoroughly, you, you notice that he follows a similar pattern. He goes through deep theological truths first, and once he has addressed that theological truth, he uses that truth to focus on a specific problem that that church or that local area has to make his point. And so he follows that pattern of here's theology, here's your problem, and here's some practical advice for me to give to you to fix this, address this, and to continue in following Jesus Christ. James is not like that at all. He is writing to the dispersion, the, the followers of Jesus that have been scattered throughout the area. So it's not written to just one location. So he doesn't have a singular problem to address. He's concerned with those who call themselves Christians. He's concerned with how they live their lives and how they interact with one another, interact with anybody in their respective countries or locations. And so James is very action-packed. He just goes straight into it. And he goes from two perspectives. He, he bounces back and forth between what you observe on the outside. And then he goes off of whatever you observe on the outside. He wonders, does this reflect what is on the inside? Or so if it's bad, is, there's obviously badness in your heart. But if it's good, he questions, is there really goodness in your heart? Because both the outside and the inside matter to God. So in the passage that I've read up to this point, I break it down at roughly as so. Verses 19 through 21 is about the implanted word of God. This word of God is able to save your souls from, he lists out filthiness, rampant wickedness, and he also focuses a little bit on anger. But then the next section, verses 23 to 25, is about the fact that in order to have the implanted word of God, you had to have heard it at some point. Someone had to share the word of God with you. And so it's emphasizing on, yes, you can hear the word of God, but you must also do the word of God. And then we come to verses 26 and 27, where it's not just, I've heard it and I'm doing it, and therefore look at me how religious I am. I am doing the word of God, and yet he questions. You may have heard it, you may be doing it, but what are your heart's intentions? And he calls it eventually that religion is worthless if you have a certain problem, and he uses the problem of bridling controlling the words that come out of your mouth. So my sermon today is going to be more on word studies. Um, And so those of you who've done things like inductive Bible study, 
reading, reading the passage, you, you find keywords, and you can use BibleGateway.com and search the English translation and see what other passages use that keyword to get a sense of feeling and understanding what that word is. Uh, those advanced can use things like BibleHub.com, and you can find the original Greek, and it will search the Greek of where that Greek is actually used. Because my goal as minister is I desire to empower you by entrusting to you God's word so that you can live your life freely for his glory. Uh, My goal is that if I can empower you, I have less work to do. It's my goal in life that people do not depend upon me, but they trust in God's word and the Holy Spirit and the brothers and sisters around them. And if I can give counsel and advice along the way, I would be glad to. You've heard it say that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. And yet here James is emphasizing that there is a religious aspect towards Christianity. There is the external things that you see. So when you think of the word religious, is the first word we're going to talk about, what do you think of? What is it that makes up religion? I mean religion in broad scale. Something that's commonly um, understood when you think of the word religion. What is religious or religion? What do you think of? Segments? Sacraments. Sacraments. Can you explain that one for me? Because I'll explain myself later. I'm a non-denominational, so I don't know what that word means. Yeah. Okay. These are... are, um, uh, Elements in our worship that we considered holy that we practice out. Okay, good. Any other thoughts behind religion or religious? Rituals. Awesome. Rules, right? We got certain ways of living, uh, certain beliefs. Good. Uh, This word religious, Paul uses it in Acts 26.5, when he talks about himself, about being a Pharisee. I have lived in accordance to the strictest party of our religion as a Pharisee. Uh, This word is also used in Colossians 2.18. And it's actually, you don't see the word religion, you see the word worship. Let no one disqualify or insisting you on the worship of angels. So Paul is basically saying, those who say you have to worship angels, he says, be wary of that religion that may be out there. What's the denomination of Redeemer Church? PCA. Tell me, what are some of the religious aspects of the PCA Church that distinguishes it from other denominations? Because I don't know. And I'm not going to report to Mark. If you don't know, that's great. (laughs) Don't you worry. Okay, Reformed Theology. Anything else? Because I can't tell you. I don't know. You're all looking at me for answers right now. I don't know. Um, It could be how you, you, um, uh, just how you run your Sunday services. Certain elements you have in place, a certain order that you have. Oh, this definitely feels like a PCA church when you walk in. Um, I've heard that um, like for Southern Baptists or First Baptist churches, uh, back in, I don't know when, but when they start building the first Baptist churches in America, they all have the same architectural structure, right? 
you have a specific design of your church, of your place of worship, and these are the things that distinguish you from one from the other. <clears throat> a little bit about myself. I grew up in a non-denominational church here in Cincinnati called the Cincinnati Chinese Church. Now, there are strengths and weaknesses of a non-denominational church. <clears throat> I am 36 years old. I attended uh, the elementary school in the Cincinnati area in the 80s, and every year we have these things called standardized tests, right, to test your academic progress. And while it was, supposed, it was in some part to test the student, it is actually to test the school, whether or not the students have learned, and their score is supposed to reflect the school's uh, level of education. So I grew up in the time when the context of non-denomination actually never existed. And this is the late 80s, early 90s. And I remember filling out the demographic information of these standardized tests. What is your age? What is your ethnicity or race? And then it goes, what is your religion? And I remember going through the list, and on that list of the options, there was not Christian. There was Presbyterian, there was Catholic, there was Baptist, there was Episcopalian, and the full list, and then it goes, the major ones, Buddhism, Muslim, and then other. It was not listed Christian. And so I grew up in a Chinese church, and I'm very confused, and they say there's no such thing as a dumb question. So I raised my hand and asked the teacher. I said, I don't know what to put here. This is how she asks me, what is the name of your church? Cincinnati Chinese Church. She goes, that's it? I said, yes. And she just walks away. <laughs> so I know what she's looking for. Is it the United Methodist of whatever, whatever? Is it the First Baptist Church of whatever, whatever? Is it the Episcopalian, so on and so forth? No, our name is Cincinnati Chinese Church. And it's actually very creative because in English, it's Cincinnati Chinese Church. And then in the actual Chinese, it actually does, like the, 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 the terms, the characters for that name does not have Chinese. It just says Cincinnati Church. Pretty darn creative, I must say. <laughs> Trying to trick you in, right? Is it a Chinese church? Well, it's in the Chinese language, so if you can't read it. <laughs> but the English is Cincinnati Chinese Church. And so I started questioning, is my culture my religion? Cincinnati Chinese Church. And this is the struggle of second generation struggle in the church. It becomes a constant conflict of values and practices and identity of who, who are we? Are we Chinese or are we American? And then we add the third aspect of, no, we are Christian, but every single culture represents Christianity in their own way that ultimately magnifies their culture more than it magnifies Christ. And so that has been my struggle for the last 15 or so years of asking God, who am I? What is it about culture and what are we held responsible for? And so while I feel like I've been called to share the gospel truth to anyone of any background, culture, experience, my desire, my end goal is to see how is God actually holding every culture accountable? We all have the good things that honor Christ, and we have some of the things that really dishonor him. And are we really being held accountable? Because I think every culture's tongue ultimately seeks to boast in itself. And so that's what he says, bridle your tongue. 
I'm actually not going to go too in-depth about bridling your tongue because if you study the book of James, uh, James 1, all of chapter 1 is more like an introductory summary of what he's going to talk about later. So this whole bridling your tongue, he spends the entire section of chapter 3 talking about what that means. But he introduces it here, and he says, if he cannot bridle the tongue, that religion is worthless. So I'm going to talk about that word, worthless. This religion is worthless. James, you may think, he might be talking about the religiosity of the Pharisees, because after all, this is what Jesus does. He uses the same word, worthless, in the Greek, when he uses the Greek of it for Isaiah 29 and Matthew 15, <clears throat> where the Pharisees are questioning Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Why don't they follow the traditions that we tell everyone to follow? And Jesus says, you dare break the commandment of God for your traditions? You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah say of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain or in worthlessness do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So it almost sounds like James is giving his version of Jesus' words, and then Jesus also has his version of Isaiah, and there's also this Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 33, 31. I apologize, I won't have it on the slide. You can listen to this. It's James's first half sounds like this. And they come to you as any people come. They sit before you as supposedly my people, they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act, and their heart is set on their own game. And so the sinfulness of man in any sort of religiosity, this problem is going on back in the Old Testament. It's a problem going on in the New Testament. And it's a problem for Christianity even today. It's the same problem, just a different mask of religion. Before I get into the internal piece, I, he introduces it with the word deceiving your own heart. In James, he uses two different words that can be translated into deceiving. The first one in, is in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, and deceiving yourself. This is also used by Paul in Colossians 2.4 in the context of persuasive arguments. Do not be deceived by persuasive arguments. And so this definition of deceiving reflects more of a logical deception. I have false, falsely... Uh, argued with you, debated with you, and twisted the mind, the reasoning, such that you are now deceived. It's all about the thoughts. In this section, 126, this deception of the heart, deceives us heart, is a sense of sensuality, a sense of temptation or seduction. You have been seduced by some sense of feelings that you are going towards and you cannot, with that feeling, you cannot control your tongue, you cannot control your actions and that religion is therefore of no value. You are deceived in your heart. So there's a deception of the mind and there's a deception of the heart. 
So one of the things I also am actively pursuing in my own personal life is I have a private practice of counseling. I have a master's in mental health counseling, uh, received my license just a few months ago, so I'm privately practicing. I want to interweave some counseling concepts, which when you really hear it, it's not necessarily that this belongs to counseling alone, meaning counseling doesn't exclusively own the rights to these concepts. It's the concept of thinking and feeling. How many of you have ever taken a Myers-Briggs personality test and you know what you are? Okay, so let me just ask you first, uh, how many of you are thinkers? How many of you are feelers? Okay, the rest of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you're like, don't we all think and feel? The answer is yes, we all do. But the main difference is how do you process the world around you and how do you make decisions? So, for example, are you doing it based more on your thoughts or on your feelings? So if I say, yeah, I, that didn't feel good to me. You know, that person just confronted me about something, and he or she may be right, but it didn't feel good. Therefore, I'm going to conclude that that person is wrong because they did not approach me in a very loving way, and it felt wrong. And if that's who you are, you are a feeler versus you're the thinker and you're trying to confront somebody and you're like, no, that doesn't make sense. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm gonna disagree with you on that because you know, if you follow my reasoning, I'm actually right and you are wrong and that whole confrontation just falls apart. You are a thinker. And so here in this, this is a realization that there are ways that we can be deceived, different ways. You can be in your thoughts and your feelings. And I think the serpent did both for Eve and Adam you will not surely die. You will become like God. Oh, okay. God knows good and evil. I'm going to be like God. There's a logical deception. And oh, this is desirous of me. There's that feeling piece into it as well. Because I believe God is a feeling God. And what Christian counseling has sought to regain in this is that the image and likeness of God is that we both have thoughts and feelings and he seeks to redeem and transform both. And I know we live in the Christian age, it's like, you can't trust your feelings. I'm like, I get it, but something has been missed because of it. Uh, for myself, my Myers-Briggs, and I'm actually kind of proud of this, and I shouldn't be proud. <laughs> um, I'm 50-50. I'm both a thinker and a feeler. Uh, I think I grew up as a child more as a feeler, and then God helped me strengthen the cognitive piece, and now I can observe things evenly. So if someone comes off to me very heady, I'm like, well, tell me how you feel about that. <laughs> someone calls me all oh, these feelings. Well, hey, let me, let me break down the thoughts behind those feelings, right? So it's, it's where I, I desire to find this sense of bringing it all together. God created us in his image and in likeness, and the thoughts and feelings matter to God. But the caution here is that our deceitfulness, we can be deceived in our thoughts and our feelings. In most of, 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 of the New Testament, it uses the deceitfulness more on the feelings as if the feelings leads to the thoughts. And, you know, we can argue which one is it. Does the thoughts lead the feelings or feelings lead the thoughts? The answer is yes. They both occur. But some objects of example of it is Matthew 13 when Jesus used the word deceitfulness of riches that choked the word. This is about the planted word in our hearts depending on the soil that you are in and the weeds sprout up and choke you, that deceitfulness of riches. 
will destroy the word. And so we see throughout New Testament, you could be deceived by lust. You can deceive by riches. You can be deceived by power, fame. If this is in your heart, your religiosity is worthless. And so the internal faith matters to God. Verse 27, I'm not going to go too much into actual specific words. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I listened to Pastor Mark's message to uh, my church when he covered for me a few weeks ago. He had shared in that sermon, he might have shared here, that his lowest spiritual gift is discernment. And so he shared about how he had done ministry with Teen Challenge, and, which is a, a serving men and now women to overcome their drug and alcohol addiction. And if you know addicts, they lie to get whatever they want. So that was a great learning experience for him. His discernment has not increased because of it. He's talking to people who are lying to his face. He goes, oh, yeah, okay. And he takes things at face value and worth. For me, my, my third spiritual gift is discernment. And so I'm kind of encouraged to see how we can complement each other in, in the future in our respective ministries as we dialogue and discuss certain things. But what I like about verse 27 is this. You cannot con your way in this type of religion. If your entire life is spent of serving the marginalized, the weak, the oppressed, the powerless, the brokenhearted, there is no way you're going to do this for any sort of selfish gain or accomplishment or success or self-glory. And this is what we see. There is that pure desire of what you want to do. There is also the compassion. The way I define compassion is a combination of love and sorrow. It is the sorrowful response out of love to another person's affliction. In this case, we have orphans and widows in their affliction. Where is the compassion in your heart to the broken, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed? Because ultimately, that is what Jesus' life was all about. And ultimately, his cross was all about. It is his compassionate, his sorrowful response of love to our own affliction of sin and death. So the religiousness, the external things, is how are you actually loving others around you? How are you being sacrificial? And I thank you for, for the introduction to that couple who takes care of all these kids with specialized needs. That is his religion. Their religion, that couple, they are living it out fully. It is pure and undefiled before God. They have lived a constant sense of sacrifice, of love and compassion. And so for things for you to, to reflect upon is questioning the heart. These four questions are actually all very similar things, actually. So the broad question is, what are your motives in what you say and do? What is it that's driving behind you of what you say and do? The two, next two questions is another form of motives. What do you hope to gain? And what are you afraid of losing? I know we think of try to find out what are win-win situations, which is always like the ideal thing, but on the side, there's always a sense of loss. Every decision, every choice in life, you have a gain and you have a loss. 
And you, you make your judgment based upon what you think will be the gain and what will be the loss. And that is something for you to think about as you evaluate what is it that you're doing supposedly for God, for Christianity, for Jesus, or even for others. Whom are you aiming to please? Whose love and affection are you really trying to gain as the end result? Because in all of these, it really addresses those things that James will talk about later. The lustfulness of the heart, the gain of riches or the fame and fortune that all of us can be tempted and deceived to follow afterwards. Because our end goal in lives, our religion, really that our worship, our life of worship, not just every single Sunday, but it's every single day of our lives of how to be more like Christ. And that is what James is all about, faith in the real world, how we're being more like Christ in every single day of our lives, growing in compassion, growing in pure desires in how we think, how we feel, and how we act in the name of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father God, you know our hearts, and you know where we are as we stand before you, not just today, but every single day of our lives. So we ask for you, Holy Spirit, that you will be gentle, kind, and yet firm as you continue to transform us both on the outside and also on the inside. Lord Jesus, we desire to have hearts that, that follow after you to want to be more and more like you. Increase in us the compassion that you've had for us and for those around us. Increase in us the pure desires of the heart. And Lord, we confess for things that may come up and we thank you for the grace and mercy that you give to us that we can always, always confess these things to you and you will love us with your grace and mercy that you will heal us, transform us, and we will live lives that you will say one day, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.